This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Welcome to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm here with my co-host, Jim Bob Dingerdine. How are you? <laughs> Jim Bob. <laughs> Dinger Dean? Oh. <laughs> you know what? I'm great. I love when you do that, and I'm so caught off guard, especially after having such an intense and intimate and beautiful conversation with Paul Young. Robert Vore, what just happened? Man, that is a fantastic question. We had oh, an amazing God. conversation with William Paul Young, uh, author of The Shack and Lies We Believe About God and a number of other books, but it was it was fantastic. I know you're a huge fan. Uh, I, oh. I didn't know much mm. about him going in, had just read The Shack for the first time, but what a fantastic guest, uh, especially the, getting into some of the lies we believe about God. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna reach out and maybe have a another episode with him on it. I think. Oh no, not maybe. We're having part two, so just stay tuned, y'all. I I wasn't fanboying. I was fangirling like <laughs> so bad. I, so I got to interview him. My goodness, seven or eight years ago on a podcast that I hosted. Um, way back when, and it was shortly after the Shack came out, and he was so gracious then and so something that impresses me about Paul is how present he he is he's such a great listener and that's you know one of my biggest struggles um but he's such a great listener he's so present he um and then seeing him live seeing him in person in Birmingham he took time to speak with every single person that waited around to talk to them he makes eye contact he listens he's not just shaking hands giving you a hug and walking away he's listening to people's stories because the shack has impacted people in such phenomenal ways and it's not just the shack, it's Crossroads, it's Eve, and now this new book. I can't wait for people to hear this interview with Paul Young. Well, it was fantastic. A quick note, if I am more quiet than normal, I don't know if you can tell by listening to my voice, I'm sick, I've been feeling kind of down and out the past couple of days, so I'm a little more quiet than normal. I'll try to pop in here and there, but Steve does a fantastic job of, of asking all the right questions and, and things. So it's a it's a great episode. Do we have any announcements before we kick this thing off? Yes, we do. We are we're doing a huge giveaway. We're doing a CXMH prize pack. Oh, right. And that prize pack includes an autographed copy of the shack, an autographed copy of Finding God in the Waves by Science Mike. Uh, an autographed copy of Cancer is Funny by Jason Michelli, and an autographed copy of both of my books, From Pastor to Psych Ward and Self-Care for the Wounded Soul. It is a huge prize pack that yeah. you have the opportunity to win, and here's how you win it. 
by going to iTunes, leaving an honest review. We would love five stars, but leave an honest review about what you think about the show, why you love it, what you want more of. Just leave an honest review there on iTunes, and we are going to do a giveaway to one person who's left a review. So what you need to do is leave that review, take a screenshot of the review that you've left, and email it to us. Robert, what's the email address? cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. So screenshot the review that you leave on iTunes, email it to us, and two weeks from the day this episode airs, we will email, uh, we will announce the winner of the CXMH prize pack in our newsletter. So if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, you can do that as well at our website, which is cxmhpodcast.com. Yeah, and all, awesome. the, all the information for that is in the show notes. Uh, another quick note, because I'm not sure if everybody, I only discovered this a little bit ago, but down in iTunes where it shows the show notes, uh, if you click, there's a button that says show full description, all the links will work if you if you click that. It'll show up what we've typed with all the links that work. So Rock on. Just a helpful tidbit there. So leave us a review. Listen to this episode. If you haven't listened to our past episodes, you need to. We talked to Jason Michelli, Science Mike, Sarah Fader, Sarah Schuster, Scott McConnell. We've had some fantastic people on so far, uh, and it, it only gets better from here. We have some great things lined up. Thank you all so much for being a part of this, for listening and sharing it on social media, for joining in the conversation on Twitter. We could not do this without you, so thanks for being a part. Absolutely. Well, here we go. Here is our interview with Paul Young. Away we go. Hey, everybody. This is Brian Neese from the Reimagining Podcast, and you're about to embark on another meaningful episode of the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. I really appreciate the brave work these guys are doing, and I listen to this podcast because of the very real and raw dialogue about where Christianity and mental health intersect, and their humor is pretty good, too. I'd like to invite you to check out my Reimagining podcast, where we bravely jump into the dangerous and rewarding human quest of reimagining ourselves, our culture, our faith, maybe everything. Now, get comfortable and tuned in for this week's CXMH podcast. Welcome to the CXMH podcast. I'm Steve Austin. I'm so glad that you are here. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and friend, Robert Vohr. Robert, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm all right. Uh, I'm a little sick, a little under the weather, but so excited to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here. I hope you get to feeling better really soon. So, man, today, oh my goodness. So, a couple of weeks ago, we got to interview Science Mike about his new book, Finding God in the Waves. And I thought, man, this is huge. And it was huge because Science Mike is probably one of the smartest people we will ever talk to. Yeah. But today we get to talk to one of the kindest, one of the most gracious people that we'll probably ever talk to. And I'm so, so excited. I, but not so smart. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? Science Mike's brilliant. No doubt about it. That's the Liturgist podcast, correct? Yes. That is. Yes. He's, he has asked Science Mike and he has the Liturgist podcast. Yep. But today we get to talk to Paul Young, who is one of my favorite authors of all time. I've read The Shack 
four times. Uh, I've read his other books. Uh, Crossroads is right up there too. And I actually sent a copy of Crossroads to a friend of mine who is in Folsom Prison. And he wrote me back and said, this is one of the greatest books I've ever read. So um, we are here with Paul Young, who is author of, as I said, The Shack, Crossroads, and Eve, and soon-to-be-released nonfiction, Lies We Believe About God. Paul was born a Canadian, raised among a Stone Age tribe by his missionary parents in the highlands of what was Netherlands, New Guinea, now West Papua. He suffered great loss as a child and a young adult, and now enjoys what he calls the wastefulness of grace with his growing family in the Pacific Northwest. Paul says that facts never tell real stories. The journey has been both incredible and unbearable, a desperate grasping after grace and wholeness, the pain of trying to adjust to different cultures, of life losses that seem too staggering to bear, of living with an underlying volume of shame so deep that it constantly threatened any sense of sanity, of dreams not only destroyed but obliterated by personal failure, of hope so tenuous that only the trigger seemed to offer a solution. A few facts also do not speak to the potency of love and forgiveness, the arduous road of reconciliation, the surprises of grace and community, of transformational healing, and the unexpected emergence of joy. Is that not the greatest mm. bio ever? That's fantastic. <laughs> Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, I'm so honored to be with you, you both, uh, even though, you know, one of you is not feeling up to snuff. That's Blessings on your body, and may you recover quickly. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Paul, I think this is uh, this is going to be a fun one because, as I mentioned, I've read The Shack so many times. My my copy of The Shack probably looks worse than my copy of the Bible. It is tattered and marked up, and it's it's just one of my all time favorites. But uh, Robert has just finished it for the first time. He's just read yeah. it. Oh, so, that is awesome. Yeah. yeah, I think that's so cool. You kind of get this, you know, this green guy who's just finished it. So I think there'll be some great questions today. That's awesome. Robert, what was your overall, or let me, let me put it this way. What part of it touched you? Oh man, I think so many parts, especially towards the end. I think when there was the part where he reconnected with his dad um, mm. really hit me. I think a lot of the really emotional moments with him, with his, especially with, with his daughter at the end where he saw her through the waterfall, I had to kind of pause and take a moment, you know, as my wife was right next to me reading a different book and I was kind of tearing up and, you know, but, um, I thought it was fantastic overall. I, as Steve mentioned, I'd never read it, uh, not necessarily out of any, I think when I was younger, I had heard, uh, a priest mention it in a sermon that I was half listening to. And then when I kind of went through a period of deconstruction and kind of switched faith lives from what I'd grown up in, um, I think that I had always kind of connected it with that. And so I always thought, hey, I'm not really interested in that. But the way Steve talks about it, and I, I, trust, <laughs> I trust Steve pretty well. We do a lot together. And so I thought if he, the way that he talks about it, I need to read this, uh, especially if we're going to talk to you, but even if not. And so I really enjoyed it was a little skeptical out of just that honesty, but really, really enjoyed it. it. It caught me really off guard. So thank you for writing it. It's fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Go ahead. Fire away. 
Oh, my goodness. So it's been a few years since this book came out, Paul. What is... It landed in the garage May of 2007, so almost 10 years. I remember in our first interview with, in my first interview with you years ago, you talked about the garage being full of boxes and, you know, wondering if they were ever going to sell. And I think when we talked, you tell me if I'm wrong, I think you were either still doing or had just quit doing a job doing janitorial work. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was working three jobs when I wrote it, and I kept working three jobs up until into 2008. And, um, uh, which, uh, you know, I thought I'd be doing your, your basic kind of work the rest of my life. I was uh, doing shipping and receiving for a, for a manufacturer's rep warehouse circuit boards and then uh, did all the janitorial. So cleaned the toilets and swept the floors. And then um, it was a hotel night clerk part of that time and worked in a hotline for a food processing company, which was really hard work, by the way. And then um, on the side... At night, I would do web conferencing for companies on the other side of the planet that needed sort of a internet disc jockey to help them with their meetings. So, <laughs> so how does how is life different now? Uh, you know, basically ten years later, if this was two thousand eight when you were you were quitting working and and being able to transition, how does life look different now? Um, not in the things that matter, thankfully. Um, mm. And, and I make a couple points about the book that I think are really important. And that is when I made the first 15 copies at Office Depot um, on the photocopier, um, put the little spiral bound thing on the side in the plastic cover, those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted that book to do. So all of this is, is nothing that was sort of an agenda or a plan or an expectation or any of that. It's just, just this wild, crazy... Um, activity of God's sense of humor, I think. And um, um, the other thing I tell people is that everything that mattered to me was in place before I wrote the book. Mm. And that was identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. Mm. Um, so the book hasn't added any of those things to me. It has mm. changed our capacity to um, be involved in some things that we just didn't have the ability to before. And that is, um, you know, working with some of the uh, nonprofits and, and especially in the Portland area. Yeah. The foundation that you've started. I love that. Yeah. So we have a, we have a, a guest house that functions in a lot of different ways, but we support uh, Portland leadership foundation, uh, significantly who is a, uh, started by a couple guys, young life guys who came up off the streets, but they have six major initiatives that is changing Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, and um, and uh, in education, in foster care, in just a bunch of things. So it's kind of like start where you live, and then work out from there. And um, so some of that we're able to do in a in a way that we just didn't have the capacity for, which is such a such a great privilege. And the the other thing that I want people to understand is that because because it it didn't it wasn't part of what I needed. I didn't need a book and I didn't need a movie and I didn't need all these things because <laughs> I'd already resolved those things. Um, identity and worth and value, etc. But what the book did give me and probably what the biggest change is is the 
the level of invitation into the holy ground of other people's stories. Mm. Um, wow. It is, you know, I, I wrote this little thing for a gift for my kids for Christmas that, that, is, <laughs> that, is, that, is, that has ended up being the number two book in the history of Brazil. Uh, it was dubbed by <laughs> Croatia as their book of the decade. And last year, the Ministry of Culture contacted me of Croatia and asked me to come speak to the country, which I did. And, wow. and it's just had this massive uh, opening impact on the planet in so many conversations across so many kinds of bridges. And so I get invited into places that I couldn't have even imagined where conversations are happening that are, that are bridging the gaps or breaking down the, the walls um, in the conversation. And that's, I mean... To walk on another person's story and, yeah. and inside that, that's, I tell people that's why we're born barefoot. You know, we were intended to walk our whole lives on holy ground. And that's mm, wow. the ground of other people's stories. You know, it's, uh, here's why it's done that for me, from my perspective, the reason that it has opened all the things that it has opened, it's opened dialogue, it's opened minds, it's opened hearts, it's. Man, for a guy like me who grew up in the church, in a very conservative, very fundamental church, in a very conservative, very fundamental family where it was rules-based, performance-based, where um, faith was based on fear, shame, and guilt, then you have this, this crazy guy, this heretic who writes this story about this God, who's a, a black woman, but but you write this story about this this God who loves us right where we are, and it, and it goes so much deeper than I can't even begin to do the book justice. But it gave me permission. This is, I think, the point for me. It gave me permission to look at God differently because I'd always had questions. There had always been dots that the church had connected that didn't connect for me. And I'd always been scared to speak out because every time I ever asked some of those off-the-wall questions or any time I ever questioned things that were given to me as a church-going kid in that authoritarian way, you know, I was always, I always felt judgment burning into me. But this book gave me permission to say, maybe there's more. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is not the end of the story. Maybe what I have is is only the beginning. And um, man, for a kid who experienced childhood sexual abuse, for a guy who was um, addicted to pornography for 20 years and and working in the church part of that time, and then reading The Shack, I think it was the third time I read it uh, during my recovery from a suicide attempt as a youth pastor. This book, man, it it just gives you, like I say, it gives you permission to connect to God and know that God wants to connect with you. So I, I can't say thank you enough. Oh, that is so wonderful. And that, that's a perfect example of uh, being allowed to step onto the holy ground of your story, you know, and, and I'm thrilled that I got to participate in some sense inside that space. And, the, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, you're talking about 
your history is my history. You know, yeah. modern evangelical fundamentalists, very rigid, um, yeah. where, you know, questions were rebellion. That's how they were considered. Mm-hmm. And we got quoted the verse, you know, rebellion's worse than witchcraft. That's you know, right. So, mm. Yeah. And so, so uh, I'm guessing that connecting with people in in the holy ground of their stories, that now, several years later, has, I would assume, is the direct result of, of this new book of Lies We Believe About God. Yes, uh, to a large degree. That's right. But, you know, the questions lead to the exposure of the lies we believe. That's why they're dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and systems are largely constructed around fundamental lies because systems exist primarily uh, from a from a sense of fear, of, of a need to control something, a need to find a way to get certainty about security or identity or worth. And, and it's not that it's, it's evil um, completely. It is that it is a mix of the good intentions of the heart to do good wrapped in all the fear-based stuff of, of needing certainty and control. Yeah. And, um, and so a, a a lot of what we thought was true actually isn't. And what happened with The Shack and what's happening with the movie already in the screenings that I've been a part of mm-hmm. is that th- the same thing, the heart leaps before the head can engage. And it's when mm-hmm. the head engages that, that you feel the, the cognitive dissonance, the, the sense of tension. And a lot of us who grew up in the church referred to that tension as something wrong. It's like uh, something that was challenging the certainty of the doctrine. And, and if we questioned that, we'd end up, you know, the slippery slope down into the the abyss of forever burning fire, you know? And yeah. uh, um, so, but, but the book did that. And um, I was thinking about a article that was written by uh, the president of Denver, Denver Seminary after the book came out. And he said, I don't care what kind of Pharisee you are. Didn't for a, even a nanosecond, didn't you want to be inside the embrace of Papa when she came through the door and picked a McKinsey up and wrapped mm-hmm. him around? And um, and that's it. The heart resonates. And then the brain, it's going to take time to retrain, but it's going to require questions to be asked. So, you know, lies, the book Lies We Believe About God, over this journey started originating by little tweets that I would do you know, mm-hmm. things you'll never hear God say. Yeah, I remember it well. Yeah. So, and then, um, uh, you know, and so I'd written, I was going to write Eve, and uh, this conversation started coming up with a publisher. So they made it part of a, a two-book thing where I would do Eve and then lies we believe about God. So, and that just, lies comes out March 7th. So it's, it's, it's right here. I just got my first hardback copies of it mm. yesterday. Hey. We just got our first hardback copies yeah. last week. So did we get ours before you got yours? That's pretty cool. Yeah, you got yours. Well, see, we're moving. <laughs> oh, man. So they 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 got delivered to the old house, and the per, and the and the buyers just let me know yesterday that they were over in the garage. So oh, <laughs> how funny! How funny! Well, we, want to, um, we want to dive into lies we believe about God in just a minute. But I okay. do. I want to talk a little fun around the Shack movie. I mean, we've yeah. got our tickets. We're going opening night. Cannot wait. But my goodness, what is the experience like having a book? Because I, you know, I'm a writer. Um, having this this book that 
was just intended for your kids as a gift, and now it's this major motion picture with all these big players. What's that like? It is so weird. I can't <laughs> even... <laughs> it is. It is so surreal, and I mean, we just we think about it every day as as family and friends, and we just laugh about it. It's like, uh, oh, here, let me put it in my mom's phrase, which is a few weeks ago, and I was visiting her, and she's looking at me funny across the room, and I go like, what? She goes, she shakes her head. She goes like, you're my son. Who would have thought? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm going like, exactly. That's exactly right. Who would have thought, you know? And, um, you know, I was, I was telling someone yesterday, it was like getting caught um, in a massive wave the first time you've ever seen the ocean. And so you go out in it thinking that you can control it somehow. And once you're in one of those waves, there is no way. And, and you know that it's only about kind of keeping your head up and hanging on to whatever happens to be around. The, um, it's just a crazy thing. So it's very fun. Um, oh, and, I love it. And I didn't, uh, I didn't anticipate being uh, involved because I, I laid down the creative control and I laid down the rights to it. And, and then Lionsgate came and asked me to be a part of it. And Gil Netter contacted me and asked me to look at the script and Stuart Thank Hazel being God. the director. And, <laughs> and so, so I got to be involved all the way along. I was on set. I'm in a cameo. Wow. Oh, fun. Um, oh, my gosh. How cool is that, right? That is and I, cool. And I got to look at the post-production work and give my notes. And so, yeah. So, I mean, and all of that was a gift. It wasn't required and expected. Yeah. And it, and it, I tell you, one of the sweetest moments was Lionsgate, a secular movie house, calls me up and says, you know, Paul, would you consider coming on set the very first day of the shoot up in British Columbia and praying a blessing over the entire cast and crew? Oh, wow. Now, how cool is that? Yeah. Wow. Now, there's a, did you know about that across the country, there is a, um, I don't know what they call it, a premiere night, which is March the 2nd, because the movie releases nationwide March the 3rd. Right. We are there March the 2nd and cannot wait. Oh, you know what? Uh, Delilah, the radio talk show host, did the, the um, uh, frames that whole evening, and then there's all these conversations and interviews uh for about 20 25 minutes after you watch the movie uh-huh they're fantastic because they're interviews with the uh, actors about the impact of playing the different roles and what it's done to them and it's it's so beautiful it's oh, so i love it I, well tell me for those of us who are are insane fans of the book of the shack Set our fears, <laughs> calm our fears, and tell us that they've done the book justice, please. If you loved the book, you will not be at all disappointed in the movie. Good. It is, Good. It is one of the best book-to-screen adaptations I've ever seen. I tell you, everybody that was involved in this thing brought their own heart to it. and uh, oh. Because the book had obviously, and I know the stories, had impacts in their lives before they played the role. And... Um, and you'll see that in the in the little clips that are part of the March second event. And um, but yeah, no, it's fantastic. You, it it is so touching. Just take tissue, you know. Oh, I, oh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, we want to jump into talking about the new book, Lies We Believe About God. Uh, it comes out. Did you say March seventh? Is yes. that right? Yep. 
March 7th. Well, so Robert and I have been going through it for the last week. And um, in the book, there are, was it 27, 28, 28 lies, we believe? 20, yeah, 28 lies, we believe. We would love to touch on um, three or four of them during our talk with you today. Is that okay? Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. What was your overall sense as, you, as you've been going through it? You know what? Okay, so here's what's funny for me. I have been a nonfiction reader from the word go. The Shack was the first fiction book that I read since high school. I just never got into fiction and certainly not anything that had any feel of science fiction or fantasy, none of that. And um, when when the church, you know, when when the church world in a lot of places came out so strongly against the shack, I said, well, this is probably the one I need to read. <laughs> <laughs> so the shack brought me back to being a lover of fiction. And then I pick up this book, um, your first nonfiction work, and, and I was so excited because in listening to so many podcast interviews that you've been a part of, in watching interviews on YouTube, uh, I got to um, meet you live at Mountaintop Community Church in Birmingham years ago. And so I, I got to learn some of your theology behind the book and all of that. And so when I heard this book was coming out, I thought, this is, this is going to be fantastic. And it did not let me down at all because— you address in in the lies, you address so many of the questions that I've had for a long, long time. Cool. Good to yeah. hear. Yep. Yep. So we want to frame this. Um, you know, this show is all about faith and mental health. Um, Robert and I both have, um, you know, living experiences with struggles with mental health. Um, we both have our own struggles with faith, you know, and our own questions and things like that. And we, um, our goal is to be encouraging and hopeful and helpful. Um, and I, I know that you have, um, you know, experience with more than your fair share of various traumas and things like that. So, um, so we're just, we're going to kind of come at it from that angle and I've got all sorts of notes. <laughs> um, so let's get to the first one. Give me just a Absolutely. second to get there. Hey, Steve, let, I'll yeah. hop in with one while you Come on. find some of yours. I wanted to bring up two of them that are, I think are kind of two sides of the same coin. One is God is in control, and the other is God is not involved in my suffering. And I bring those up kind of as two sides of the same coin from the lens of, and the shack relates to this some too, that God causes suffering in hopes to bring something else out of it, or that God is just absent in suffering, neither of which I believe is is true. Can you talk about those some? Yeah, I mean, you picked on on one of the ones that is so central to the dogmatic fundamentalism that I grew up in, and the language is that God is in control. Um, I wrote a piece, I was working on a piece called The, the Four Spiritual Lies, <laughs> and mm. uh, because I grew up with the four spiritual laws. I have a friend who calls them the four spiritual flaws. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the way we grew up with those was that um, they were like scripture, even though they're not true. And, um, and, and frankly, they are very opposed to orthodox, traditional, early church theology. But they were presented to us in terms of bridge theology. That is that 
that uh, somehow the, the universe got spun out into empty space and we kind of messed the whole place up. So God sends Jesus over to build a bridge back to heaven kind of thing. Right. Um, and part of that was that God is in control. And, the, and, and by control, which you never were allowed to really ask what that meant, but the, the sense was that everything that happened, it was, it was like fate. It was like um, that everything that happened, God is the originator and author of. Well, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Carol, who's a publisher out of um, Germany, and uh, we just ran into each other. We've been friends for a while. We ran into each other in Orlando at a book thing. And um, she said, what are you working on? And I tell her about this. And she said, well, uh, I said, I'm particularly focused on the first one that sounds so good. It's, it is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, how could you argue with that? But it, it makes this plan and God's love contingent. That is that there, the love of God is dependent on your ability to be part of the plan of God, which is sort of the way that I grew up. We grew up with the idea that there was a perfect will of God, and then there was a permissive will of God when you screwed up the perfect will of God. Yes. Mm. And, and so, I mean, and my, and my, I think, legitimate questions were like, hey, how many, how many sins does it take to screw up a perfect will? You know, I'm thinking like <laughs> one, right? And yeah. if, it, if it only takes one, what iteration am I on? But the way it was communicated is like you had to do a really big one to kind of like, oh, God, God planned that Paul be um, a missionary, which at the time was the top of the totem pole in our value system, in our denomination. So but he really messed up. So oh, we're going to make him he's he can be a um, ditch digger, you know, and um, and he'll have a good life, but uh, nothing like what he could have been. I mean, we have all this guilt and angst around this. And then, like you were saying, um, there is this issue of uh, where does sin originate? Where does damage originate? Where does trauma? And in my conversation with Carol, what I didn't realize, because I'm saying like, you know what? God, God does not originate any darkness whatsoever. That's First John. God is light and then God, there is no darkness at all. Well, that is very different than the way that I grew up thinking about God. And... Um, and I said, you know what, when, when these horrible things happened, in part, it's because God has a higher view of humanity than we do, and our choices actually matter, and God submits to them, which is another whole mind-blowing thing. That's right. That's another one of your lies. Yeah, that God does not submit. And God yeah. does. God submits by nature. And, um, and so that means that God is not in control as soon as, in, in the sense of, of um, overt power and authority no when there's relationship involved and any anybody will tell you this when they think about it as soon as they have a baby that comes into their world that baby reduces any sense of control to virtually nothing yes this little baby dictates your world to you by their presence and by your response to that relationship well, that's much more dynamic and mysterious than some omnibeing who's got a plan on a on a drafting table about how your life is supposed to be. And then when bad things happen, you're going like, so this is part of your plan? And that's what Carol had run, in, run into. Mm-hmm. One of her best friends, a young man, uh, and, I, and she didn't tell me this at the time. Um, he is a stuntman, and he had been doing an on-camera 
live stunt in Munich, Germany, and something horribly went wrong, and he ended up a quadriplegic with barely able to move a finger. And, um, and it was devastating. And what was even worse, in a sense, is that Christians would come and say to his mom, well, this is the plan of God. Look at the testimony that he's going to have as a result of this, mm. right? And so they're putting the, the original impetus for this disaster in, inside the character of God. And at that point, God is not good. If God is not good all the time, you can't trust him. That's right. Yeah. And, and so, and I didn't know this was going on. And so as I'm talking, she took our conversation back to this young man's mother. And it, and it released her because the, the mother was going like, if this is the kind of God you have, I'm sorry. I don't want anything to do with this God. If God has to, you know, kill little children for other people to find their way to him. If, I mean, if you've got any of that kind of diabolical, abusive uh, imagery for God, something's wrong. If God is not a good parent or doesn't have the capacity to love the way that we do, something's wrong. And uh, so adjustment has to be made. That started a whole conversation in which Caro then sent me an, a piece of a book she translated from the German by Martin Schleski, who is a violin maker. And, and it, was, uh, it was about God as artist rather than divine planner. And it mm. fit perfectly. And so actually right now we're trying to get, we're working to try to get Martin Schleski's work translated into English because it is so stunning and so helpful. And uh, I don't know how deeply you want to go into this particular lie, but I mean, we can. Well, I think it's it's so important because I was, this, you know, I grew up with uh, in a, a church that preached free will, but a grandfather who was firmly set in predestination. And so feeling like those were the only two choices, you know, and so do I fall under the assumption of free will or predestination? Are we just a bunch of puppets? Are we robots? Yeah, I think about, you know, does does God have it planned out that I'm going to take the back roads to work today instead of the interstate because there's going to be a tragedy on the interstate? And if so, did God orchestrate the tragedy on the interstate? And what kind of all-loving God is that? Those yeah. are the questions I have. Yeah, and, and why when you get up and you, and you hear someone say, that they prayed and were healed of cancer, you know there are 10 people in the room whose, whose relative died. Yes, yes. You know? Or the family that celebrates the birth of the new baby and the poor woman over here who's had seven miscarriages. Exactly, exactly. So uh, our conversation has to change, and the way that we relate to each other has to change and w- because we live in a broken world, and human choices manifest itself in so many different ways that are destructive, but we've placed all of that at the feet of God. And here's the incredible thing. God has taken responsibility for it. You know? Mm-hmm. And he knew going in. And he, he, he owned this from the beginning. He knew going in that it would require the death of Jesus. He knew that. Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. So it wasn't like blindness on God's part. Um, I was with, let me put it in this way. I was um, talking to a friend of mine who's got two daughters and they were fighting like cats. And he's, he's saying to me, at the same time, he's struggling with the very question we were talking about. And he's saying like, <clears throat> why can't they just get it? Why can't they just see the value of the other? 
why can't they have a high view of the other that will allow them to disengage from um, the hurtful activities that they're a part of? And I, I said to him, so do you think it would be better for them never to have been born? Mm. And he goes like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, exactly. This is exactly the issue here. You know, would it have been better for God never to have created than, than for us to be so lost in our blindness that we don't know how to relate to each other in any kind of loving capacity until our eyes start to become opened up, which is a, a work of grace and a mm. work of God that is respectful to our determination to keep our eyes shut. You know, God is not going to pry your eyes open and put toothpicks in them just to keep them open. He is, he is going to love on you until you're willing to take the risk of opening them to see what you can see and to see what God sees. And, uh, but that's a high view of humanity, which I have. Um, mm. I believe that the incarnation is God's ultimate statement of what a high view of humanity has because God doesn't become anything that's bad. And he becomes fully human. It reminds me of Brennan Manning. I'm 99% sure it was Brennan Manning that said that we can't heal our view of ourselves until we heal our view of God. Well, very, very true. I mean, yeah. we, can get, we can get there part ways because of the Imago Dei, because we are attracted to things that are beautiful and right and good. This is why, you know, some folks who are coming from the esoteric or new age side of things, things have a greater degree of health, or someone who isn't as religious has a greater degree of health um, because they've, they've said no to the God that is a malicious, retributive, punitive, omni-being, and said, I don't want anything to do with that, which has allowed them to um, find a grounding within their humanity that gives them a better base for compassion than the phantom stuff that religion has offered them. Robert, it goes back to Mike McHarg's uh, section in Finding God in the Waves about neurotheology, about the angry God or the loving God. This is what we're talking about. Yeah, and even, I mean, we're talking about suffering, and, you know, I, I'm thinking about if God is causing suffering for, you know, you always get, well, what you know, God's trying to teach you something through this terrible thing that's happened, but I think of a, a picture of if for our folks, you know, if God's up there doling out anxiety disorders or, you know, things like that, then that's not, you know, I think last week, even Jason Michelli said, if there's a, a perfect explanation for our suffering, then that explanation is what we should be worshiping, you know, and I, I keep going back to that because if a God is up there doling out mental health disorders in hopes of teaching someone else something somewhere along the road, that's, I don't know, that's a hard God to follow. Well, yeah, and please don't tell me that God allowed me or orchestrated that I would be abused as a four-year-old so that I could have this testimony to write uh, about yeah. today. Yeah, and what do you call it when you when someone runs to their abuser for comfort? It just doesn't make any sense, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you say that that's sick, and yeah. yet that's the picture of God that we have, is that he is the fundamental and cosmic abuser, and... <sighs> And we're supposed to run to him as if there's comfort. And, mm. uh, and this is why when I grew up, my view of Jesus was that he did come to save me, but he came to save me from God the Father. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, wow. Think, a lot of I us think that's, up. yeah, I was going to say, I think that's common in, huh. you know, is that somehow it's a, a good cop, bad cop thing where 
Jesus saves us from the wrath of an angry God. You know, you have this Old Testament God and this Man. New Testament Jesus, and one is saving you from the other. I think that's super common. I've yeah, never so thought that. That's That makes so much sense, but I have never heard it put like that. Yeah, a lot of wow. us grew up that way. Because yeah. my dad was angry like that. And he, yeah. he, he beat the hell out of his son in order to be right with other people. So it, it matched my, the theology that God the Father was like that. So that and, and so Jesus comes to kind of be the one who stands between the punitive retributive deity, the omnibeing, which is in a sense the greater one because he needs to be appeased and all of that. And, um, and because you're such a piece of crack, which was the other part of that theology, that Jesus comes to cover you up so that that God does not see the truth of who you are and pour out his wrath on you. Mm. So you get it's called imputed righteousness, that Jesus covers you up with his robe of righteousness so that God the Father doesn't see the truth about who you are. So it's all about cover up and faking your way into heaven and, yeah. and trusting that Jesus is strong enough and, and never has to go to the bathroom, right? And, yeah. and, and But who knows where the Holy Spirit is in all this? The Holy Spirit is trying to protect, you know, the Son from an abusive father or is the holy spirit an enabler of the father's abuse toward the son i mean that's our view of the cross well lot. in in my church the holy spirit was just clucking like a chicken at the altar and running in circles that's all the holy spirit did when i was growing up <laughs> so that's a different experience altogether paul can we are, are you able to dive into your backstory a little bit here. You mentioned in passing um, about your dad being violent, about the beatings. Um, I mentioned hearing you speak live and you talked about um, the abuse that you endured on the mission field. Are you able to talk about that? Sure. I mean, we're dealing with our great sadnesses as human beings. So, you know, I've got that difficult relationship with my dad as a as one of my fundamental great sadnesses. And it took me it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father completely off the face of God. Oh, and God. Um, then sexual abuse, both in the tribal culture. Mine was sometime before I was five, like you. And, yeah. and then I was shipped away to missionary boarding school at six, and the big boys would come and molest the little boys at night. And, uh, <sighs> and then there's the whole issue of belonging. You're taking, you're taking a child, a year old, putting him into a culture that becomes his home and his first dreaming language and everything else. And then you, you pull him out of that and send him to an environment that he has no clue how to deal with it. Plus, on top of that, you have the abuse and then he finds out that he has no color. You know, I didn't know consciously until I went to boarding school that I, that I was not brown. And, um, and so I lost my color, I lost my tribe, even though the tribe was where the abuse had come from in terms of the sexual abuse. It was still the ones who raised me, you know, and they were still my family, and uh, but they were gone. And then, um, you know, so all of that puts you into place where belonging becomes a huge issue because you never feel like you belong anywhere. And you've got so much shame now that you, and that's the, the house on the inside, that's the shack, right? You have so yeah. much shame that uh, you just begin to store all of your crap there and, and perform in such a way that you can try to pick up some affection and some approval from some place enough to keep you alive. And, um, and it turns out I'm actually smart and creative, which I didn't know until I was in my 20s 
Uh, I just thought I just fooled people. That's one of the the evidences of shame. You don't think that anything is actually true about you. Mm, that's and, right. And so you know, but that that creativeness, creativity, and um, and intellectual capability uh, empowered my ability to hide, and it, and it actually I think is why it took me so long to have to deal with the stuff and it and it and it required complete exposure i had to crash and burn in a very public way um in order for the gift of exposure to be fully expressed in my life and that started an 11-year deconstruction reconstruction process that is reflected by mckenzie's weekend in the shack Mm. where everything i believed about god everything i believed about being human all of that, and all of that, as you as you've been reading in in lies, all of that's reflected in some of these lies that I've had to I've had to face, and have had to come to the place where I began to disagree with the lie, and agree with something that felt so much riskier because it required trust. And those of us who come from this kind of broken history, trust is the journey. It is yeah. the most difficult thing that we ever. Um, ever have to walk our way through and it's arduous and slow and it gets betrayed and then you have to take the risk again and then I mean and then you betray it and then oh my gosh so yeah. Yeah. and here I am you know in my early 60s and and uh, surrounded by people who love me but aren't impressed because they know that and uh, <laughs> which is a great 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 gift but Kim and I married 37 years now and oh uh, congratulations Thanks, and we're the best we've ever been. Um, yeah. Got a great relationship with my kids, my grandchildren. We've got nine. I'm tenth on the way, and they're all nine Get years out. old. Get out! Yeah. yeah. Wow. Are. Let me ask a, a question real quick because I think that's what relates so well about the shack to so many people is, as you mentioned, there is a, a, an entire deconstruction and reconstruction happens kind of in one weekend for Mac. But you mentioned yours was an eleven-year process. Yeah. So for for are folks who are somewhere in that process, especially in the deconstruction part, right? What, yeah. How do you survive an 11-year process and come out with a faith, you know? Because so much that first half is painful of peeling away these lies. How, what yeah. do you cling to in that process that can be 10, 11 years long? Yeah, and I think it, some of that's different for every person, but it's going to involve relationships. You cannot do this by yourself. And if a therapeutic relationship is is the only safe place to begin, then start there. But yes. uh, it's <clears throat> we're not designed to be alone. Um, aloneness has never existed in God. It's not part of the Imago Dei. Any sense of aloneness is part of the lie. It's part of the darkness. And the shift toward isolation and aloneness is always deeper into the dark. So as scary as it is, you've got to let others in there. And not just God. We need God in, in, in flesh and blood uh, right in front of us. And that's, that's, where, that's where elements of risk are really front and center. But, but it is absolutely essential that because most of our damage occurs in relationship, our healing will also in, occur in relationship. Yes. That was one of my favorite quotes when I started reading. I was actually scrolling through my Twitter feed to find it because I tweeted it when I started reading. And it was almost that exact quote about most of our pain happens in relationships and most of our healing happens in relationships. 
we're just built that way. And, and we're so ashamed that we, want, we don't want anybody to find out about what we think as the truth of ourselves, which is a lie, but it is what we're used to. And <clears throat> when you've been around you know, your own darkness enough, you begin to, to name, you, you begin to name your prisons as sanctuaries. And it, and it takes a lot, lot to let go of the things that give you a sense of control. And the beauty of God is that God doesn't come and rip them out of our hands. There are certain survival mechanisms that took me decades to let go of because they kept me alive as a child, but they were an impediment to relationship as an, as a, an adult. And, um, and, but God never just ripped them out of my hands, said, oh, I, you know, or ripped me through the bars of my own prisons. God joined me there. And that goes back to what, what you had said early on, Robert, and, and, that God joins us in our loss, joins us in our pain, sits down with us and says, we'll do this in your time and at your speed, but I'm not leaving. I don't yeah. forsake anybody. I'm not an abandoner. And uh, and so we're going to submit to this darkness that has been brought to the table by you or by others who've done this to you. And we're going to just incrementally, slowly build our way out of here and co-create something that is actually alive. Mm. You know, going back to talking about community, um, Mother Teresa said, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. Yep. And I th think that's – there's this undercurrent in every I've, – I've read your books, and in every one of them, there's this undercurrent, I think, that is – that we can't talk about God without talking about each other. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and it's huge. You know, and the other thing that I have to say, you um, talked a little bit about um, the abuse. I have to tell you another huge thank you. Um, I didn't start talking about my abuse until after I heard you speak in Birmingham several years ago. I didn't know that I had permission. Yeah. And so I just, man, I just can't tell you thank you enough. When I finally said, look, at, here's this guy who is wildly successful, um, who is uh, – one of the things that, that strikes me about you in, in conversation on any interview I've ever heard and especially in person is the peace that you – seem to have with yourself and and maybe that's better put the peace that you have with god i don't know but the peace that you have it it shows itself to me as a confidence it, you carry yourself confidently because you seem to be so at peace and so when you this this grown man were speaking in front of this church, this huge crowd of people about your abuse. It was the first time that I said, oh my God, I have permission to, to talk about this. And that day, that night, speaking at Mountaintop Church started me on a journey of talking to people about it and trying to find healing and trying to find restoration. So I just, man, I have to tell you, thank you so much. You're welcome, Steve. I mean, that is so beautiful. And a lot of us, we didn't talk about it because we thought we had to die in order to, for anything to come to any kind of healing. 
Yeah. We didn't think that anything could happen on this side of death. Death That's was right. our point of salvation. That's why it was so attractive. You know, it wasn't just a way to run away from the shame that we saw or the disgust that we saw in other people's eyes and what we saw in the mirror. It was like, maybe there's a chance to change if I died. And yep. um, <clears throat> I think that's why they put a ban on suicide in, inside the Catholic Church, because, you know, yeah, the desperation. Um, but, to, you know, I was wildly successful before I wrote the book in the sense that, you know, I had become a whole person who was comfortable inside their own skin. And if I worked three yeah. jobs the rest of my life, I, it was fine. I, I yeah. was good. I can clean toilets. I know how to do that. Mm. And um, the, all this book and notoriety and platform stuff, it's, it's incredibly fun, but I don't need any of it. You know, yeah. it can all go away tomorrow. And my kids would tell you that, and Kim would tell you, and my friends would tell you, if this all went away tomorrow, I'd not just be fine. I'd be great because I've been great without it. And, um, mm. But that took 50 years, right? So yeah. I didn't know it was going to be this concentrated 11 years. It felt like, you know, one, one hour at a time sometimes and one minute at a time sometimes. Yeah. The arduous nature of the transformation of a of a soul toward wholeness is way greater than the raising of a body from the dead, <laughs> which is just temporary. The the yeah. change in a soul is permanent. I mean, it's eternal. That's right. Do you have time to talk about one more chapter, one more life? Uh, quickly, I've got another coming in real short. Okay, real quick. Uh, the very first one, God loves us, but God doesn't like us. Right. So you said um, this, but saying God is love doesn't capture our attention, does it? So I've made a habit of rephrasing the line, God loves you, and instead of making it about God, I make it about the object of God's relentless affection, us. So throughout the shack, Papa would say, I am especially fond of her or him. Will you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, and it's the way we love our children. I think that if we really took the time to think about our love for our children and our grandchildren and drove that back into the nature of God as the originator of that, it would change our view of God. And um, and it was, you know, it was in conversations about our kids. We're like, which one do you love the most? Well, you can't answer that. It's the one that you're thinking about in that moment, you know, but they're all so different. And so to change it from subject to object, all of a sudden I began to matter in the conversation. Who I am matters. Mm, yes. That Papa's especially fond of me. And there's that scene in chapter 15, which by the way, the Festival of Friends that Robert mentioned, that's, that chapter is in the book the way I wrote it the day I wrote it, the reconciliation with the Father chapter and the lights and all that. It, mm. was it set the bar for all the rewrites, but it, it was never touched by a rewrite. And... Mm. In that scene, there is where Jesus walks into the middle of this worship scene from from a distance. Mackenzie is standing with the Holy Spirit, and I did that on purpose because that's how I felt. I always felt like I was on the fringe, that I barely, and I was hoping nobody would even notice that I had I'd snuck inside because I wasn't really worthy to be there. And from a distance, Jesus turns and they catch eyes, and Mackenzie hears him say, "Hey, Mac, I'm especially fond of you." And I get a I get a call from my 21 year old son who's in engineering school, bawling like a baby. And he says, "Dad, you know that scene in chapter 15?" He said, "I heard Jesus say that to me." And what he is saying is that 
No, this isn't about a God who just loves everyone. This is about a God who knows me with all of my faults and hurts and damage, with the shack that is really my broken heart. And, and this God loves the shack, doesn't love my performance, doesn't love my facade, but loves me and is especially fond of me. And I believe that's true for every single human being on the planet. Wow. Hey, if you want to connect with Paul Young, you can find him on Twitter at WMPaulYoung or on his website, WMPaulYoung.com. There'll be links to both those as well as links to Amazon to check out The Shack or Lies We Believe About God. All that will be in the show notes down below. Thank you, guys. Paul, if if you had anything to say um, to these folks who who might be dealing with a faith crisis, a mental health crisis, suicidal ideations, if you had any little nugget to give them in closing, what would it be? Reduce the complexity of the universe to just one day and stay inside of it. You only get real grace for one day. All the future tripping kind of crap just makes everything so complicated and overwhelming. Reduce it to only this day and what's in front of you. You're given grace for the day. Don't spend it on things that don't exist. So this is only about what's here. And if there are like a million things coming at you, pick one. Pick one inside the grace of the day and work just here today. You'll get grace tomorrow for whatever tomorrow holds. But as long as you can stay inside the grace of the day, there will always be enough. Paul Young, you are a gift to me today, and you are a gift to this universe. Thank you for being here. I'm I'm thrilled to participate, brother. And uh, it's a two-way street, every conversation, every interaction, every every connection with a person. So I am grateful to participate, and thank you and honored by the invitation. Blessings on your day. Same to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. Final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.